This, this is the Second Second Story Podcast. Welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. I'm Livo. Lately, I've been thinking about the idea of belonging. And as strange as it may sound, I think that there is an economy of belonging. When I think about the idea of scarcity, I think about real, concrete resources like food and water and money. Those things are finite, limited, and their unequal distribution constitutes an economy. But belonging is almost as vital as food is. On Maslow's hierarchy of needs, he placed a sense of belonging just above bodily needs and safety. And like food and money and shelter and any other need, belongingness is given to some people and not others and not in equal measures. In other words, it is a limited resource. This is a story that helped me think through living in and sometimes outside of that economy of belonging. Second Story is proud to present Lynette Lee. I was sitting cross-legged in the rightmost seat in the middle row of a Ford minivan. I was 14, the summer before my freshman year of high school. And though I'd spent more of that summer experimenting with lip liner and thinking about a boy, you wouldn't know I was that girl in this moment. We're stopped at the US-Canada border between British Columbia and Washington State. There's an abrupt heat in my chest, throat, and head. There's also an intense beating that I can feel and hear so hard and loud that I can't believe my heart is the source. And there are sudden tears just behind my eyes, not welling up or trickling, but an immediate full reservoir ready to release. It is a protective rage, distinctly different from the rage I feel when I feel personally threatened. It's reserved for when I feel I need to protect my family's right to be here, to belong. But if you had peered into that minivan at that moment, you wouldn't have observed any recognizable rage. Despite all that heat, I was frozen. You'd find me sitting there in wide leg jeans, looking like a well-behaved Asian kid inside a car filled with a well-behaved Asian family. While none of us lives there any longer, my younger sister, brother, and I were all born in Michigan, grew up there, and think of Michigan as home. But unlike most Michiganders, we're Chinese-American. And unlike most Chinese-American Michiganders, our parents grew up in the Philippines. They spoke Hokkien and Tagalog at home and Mandarin and English at school. My parents in Michigan were over 8,000 miles away from the islands they called home. And it seemed to me that we were always searching anywhere our car would take us for tastes and smells and people that reminded us of home. And so this searching for home, that's part of home too. But in the 90s, a literal piece of my mother's home moved to the continent. My Dwa'i, translated big aunt in Hokkien, moved to Vancouver. And so we departed Metro Detroit and drove for several days across the top of the United States, making stops at Mount Rushmore, the Badlands, Yellowstone National Park, and the Canadian Rockies. And after we'd stared, jaws dropped at impossibly turquoise lakes and drank from impossibly cold glaciers, we continued west to visit my mom's eldest sister. I loved that time spent in Vancouver. We hung out with our cousins, who until now had also been 8,000 miles away. Being with her big sister relaxed my mom and made her less strict. And we got to do things we didn't usually get to do, like play Street Fighter and record silly videos in our Sony camcorder and watch movies on laser discs. Crazy things like that. <laughs> Something I didn't fully realize back then is how my mom has a different energy, a fresh life source every time she's with any of her three sisters. I only got to witness it every few years when we spent precious time with extended family. A deeper breath a laugh in her eyes, a bubbling in her voice. They signal that my mom feels at home. 
that she belongs. I think that's what made that trip so special. At the end of our visit, Dua Yi gave my mom something she never got in Michigan and that we hadn't managed to find on any of our trips to nearby Chinatowns. A big bag bulging with fresh mangoes. And I'm not talking about the round red and green kind that come from Mexico. These mangoes are yellow, a little flatter, and sort of shaped like a giant kidney bean with even brighter yellow-orange flesh the kind my parents ate in the Philippines. And those mangoes, more than anything, make my mom think of home. We packed ourselves back into our car and drove south from Vancouver. We were probably playing boggle or singing full voice along to a cassette of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, the 1992 Canadian cast recording. If we were ever bored or fighting on that trip, I don't remember it. Border crossings were routine. Back home, we took countless trips to Windsor's Chinatown and back over the border to Detroit. Our passports were often scrutinized, our car often searched, and we often had to wait a long time. But never in all of those unpleasant stops had a border guard ever found what they seemed to be looking for. Until now. In my memory, the door next to me swung open. But honestly, I'm not totally sure. It either happened so fast or so matter-of-factly that there wasn't time or space for anticipation or defense. A guard reached into that space in front of me, grabbed the bag of fresh yellow mangoes and swung them out. I can't recall his face or his body or his clothing, but that feeling of that fast, aggressive swoosh, that's still right here in my chest. He dangled the bag in the air outside the car, the mangoes stretching the thin plastic. You can't take these in, he said. I remember the urgency in my mom's usually quiet voice. Can we please just eat them here? He swung the bag back and forth. Nah, these'll make you sick. You wanna be sick? He scrunched up his face and mock gagged. He swung the bag a few more times before dropping it into a garbage can. I can still see the shiny, bright yellow skin glowing through the thin plastic. As the fruit sank onto the top of the pile of things that don't belong in the United States, there it was that loud beating, the reservoir of tears, and so much heat, my protective rage. As we drove away from the border, my mom said over and over, ya sayang e manga, ya sayang. It's too bad, those mangoes, it's too bad. She spoke the familiar mishmash of Hokkien and Tagalog. I felt her pouring all our feelings onto those mangoes, so they carried the weight of everything not spoken aloud. I'd just finished middle school, old enough to have a strong sense that something wasn't fair, something was not right, but I didn't yet have the words to say why. So I took my mom's lead and mourned the loss of those mangoes, and the rage eventually gave way to anger. And after the anger, I was left with sim. I can't find an English word that describes this feeling as well as those Hokkien words. Directly translated, sim means difficult heart. I would experience protective rage at other points in my life. I was a freshman in college, singing with a prestigious vocal ensemble, and my parents were in the audience. They'd driven three hours west on I-94 to attend. They were excited and proud of me. There must have been an announcement somewhere at the beginning of the performance, no videotaping. But my parents didn't hear it. So my dad was videotaping, like he'd done at every performance I'd ever been in until then. When the director angrily stormed off the stage and into the audience, red-faced and aggressively waving a hand into my dad's camera lens. After the performance, the director cornered me backstage. I had no idea what had happened. So I guess your parents don't speak English. 
He was not a tall man, but he famously had the energy of four people combined. I felt the same fast heartbeat and heat. His face blurred as I maintained frozen eye contact. Actually, I said, shaking, they grew up speaking English. Well, obviously not well enough to understand the rules. His eyes looked like he might break out in laughter. The fast tears were right there, but this time I didn't have any mangoes to carry my feelings. And so I ran away from him before my eyes betrayed me. I was older now, starting to understand the concept of discrimination as it applied to me, but the words still weren't mine. So I let private, unruly sobs carry everything I couldn't say aloud. My parents laughed when I told them what happened later, just like they laugh whenever we speak about those mangoes. My greatest regret is not eating those mangoes. My mom moans dramatically. It's a joke in our family. I searched my parents' faces for evidence of that same rage I felt or evidence of that gankosim, I couldn't find it. I was a junior in college, engrossed in the documentary, Who Killed Vincent Chin, during an Asian American studies class. When on screen, I saw the familiar faces of ladies from my church in Detroit. I yelped, and several rows of nice white students whipped their heads around to make sure I was okay. This man, Vincent Chin, a Chinese-American engineer, just like my dad, and around the same age, had been beaten to death a few miles from where we lived. The men who killed him thought people who looked like Vincent were responsible for layoffs in the auto industry. Their sentence, three years probation and a $3,000 fine. I learned that Vincent Chin's death was often considered the beginning of a pan-ethnic Asian-American movement. And so, I called my parents in home and babbled nonstop about how I'd seen Auntie Helen and Auntie Grace and Auntie Betty on screen singing at a rally. I told them things I now realize they must have known. My protective rage sparked as I asked, why didn't you tell me? And there was that little laugh. And my mom said, you were so small then, how could we tell you? And my dad said, I was on jury duty once with that judge from Vincent Chin's trial. He called me up to the bench after court one day and I thought, oh no, what's this guy going to say? I waited for him to finish. He said he was going to take a trip to China and wanted to know where to eat. He chuckled. This was not the rallying cry I craved. Why weren't they mad too? Where was their protective rage? Why didn't we talk about any of these things that happened to us? How could I have possibly come from these parents? <laughs> A few months ago, as we were getting our kids ready for bed, my five-year-old daughter paused in space and twisted up her mouth and said, Mom, I have something interesting and odd to say. I paused too and looked into her clear face. What's up, honey? Well, today at school, Lucy told me that she makes Chinese eyes like this. My throat and chest tightened as I watched my daughter use her index fingers to pull at the corners of her big brown eyes until they were two thin lines. Instinctively, I braced myself for that abrupt heat and the pounding, but they never came. Instead, my throat and chest relaxed as I took my next breath. I asked, how did that make you feel? She shrugged released her fingers, resumed her twisted up mouth and said, it made me think of you. My daughter knows I'm Chinese and her dad is Jewish, but we've tried to let her discover her own identity as she grows. 
in the days following that conversation, I thought of my own experience with every time anyone's made those Chinese eyes at me, of the rage I felt in every instance. I tried to identify the source of that rage, the need to protect my immigrant parents, and the fear that we didn't belong. It made me think of you, my daughter had said, because she knows I'm Chinese, but there is no fear in her face or anger in her voice. She doesn't need to protect me. She's not afraid we don't belong. These days, I see those yellow mangoes everywhere, and not just on Argyle Street or in Chinatown, but in Whole Foods and Mariano's. They're also filling a bowl on my mom's kitchen table in Madison, Wisconsin. But no matter where I am, they always make me think of those mangoes. And those mangoes, more than anything, make me think of home. Here's a little game. This story was produced by Ali Drum, curated by Nick Ward, directed by Amanda Delheimer, and music and sound design by Shane Longbeam. The Second Story podcast is produced by me, Livo. Second Story is supported by the MacArthur Fund for Art and Culture at the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, a City Arts Grant from the City of Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, our 2018 to 2019 season sponsor, Skadden, Arp, Slate, Meager, and Flom, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Liv Oaf, and this, this, this is the Second, Second Story Podcast.
This story was produced by Ali Drum, curated by Nick Ward, directed by Amanda Delheimer, and music and sound design by Shane Longbeam. The Second Story podcast is produced by me, Liv Oath. Second Story is supported by the MacArthur Fund for Art and Culture at the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, a City Arts Grant from the City of Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, our 2018 to 2019 season sponsor, Skadden, Arp, Slate, Meager, and Flom, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Liv Oath, and this is the Second Story Podcast. <laughs>